From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome once again to episode 139 of the Killing It podcast. Boy, you guys were right on that time. That was spectacular. You'd think after 139 tries, we'd be practiced. (laughs) We do it live, everybody. We swear. All right, gents, for fun, where did your family go on vacations in the summer? So I have five brothers and no sisters. And so six boys packing them into a, a car and taking them somewhere didn't actually happen a lot. <laughs> Sometimes we would like drive back from Washington State to North Dakota to visit the family. Um, and sometimes we'd go to some state park or to Seattle area, uh, you know, but um, not not a lot of, of those vacations. We had fun every time we went, but we didn't do a regular, you know, go to Disneyland, you know, kind of thing, so. See, and, and we were, we were also not airplane people, right? It's funny. My kids all got on airplanes when they were very, very young, you know, from infants all the way through, and they take it totally for granted. I never got on an airplane until I was in college. Our family vacations in the summers were get in the car, drive until the end of the world, or at least that's what it felt like when I was six, and then get out somewhere in the middle of the desert. Because both of my parents are from southern utah we have tons of family around the las vegas area and uh summer like summer vacation a week in july in las vegas as a kid uh, it took me a lot of years to understand why people went to vegas for fun i figured it out now but boy i will tell you back then those car trips i I dreaded those things see i have this like like era so so i moved to london uh with my 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 father was stationed there when i was 10. so pre-london we went to ocean city maryland like every year like we were that family that every year went to ocean city maryland and that was the place we went and then we were abroad for three years and we drove around europe like all different all different times and then the amusing bit so i came back when i was 13 and I have no memories of any family vacations post then. Like I have this whole, now admittedly from 13, I was 13 to 16 and my parents were to 16. So there definitely wasn't family vacations then. But that like three year period there was like, oh yeah, I have no memories of any actual trips during that time frame. They, wow. they couldn't possibly have measured up to get in the car and drive to, I don't know, some Brussels. Yeah, Europe. Brussels, like from <laughs> London to Brussels, like the kinds of things that we did. So it was this very weird period there where, we, and we drove from England because we were stationed in London across Europe and we would take the, take the ferry because you couldn't, there wasn't the, t- the channel tunnel. There was the no time. channel. Right. So you would take the ferry every time and then we would keep going. So I have very distinct wow. memories of that. Very nice. Well, we, we had the classic, a uh, big station wagon where the, all the seats in the back folded down and we would like lay on our bellies and use crayons and, and you know, entertain ourselves uh, for the 24 hour drive to North Dakota. Wow. I, I, I will I will say it was it was uh, uh, one of the trips to Las Vegas when I was very young. I, I can I remember figuring out how speedometers worked. 
because my mother was driving and we were, you know, in, in a, in a 1970-ish Dodge something or another with, you know, an engine that would be considered irresponsible these days. And uh, it was, it was late at night and we were driving on a road she'd driven a thousand times before. And, you know, as a little kid, I'm, I'm looking out the side window and watching the telephone poles go by, like what I thought was shockingly quickly. And I, I looked over and I, I looked at the speedometer and I said to my mom, where, where does the pointy thing go when it goes past one six zero? And I was like, Hey, that's cool. Now my mother is a very timid driver these days, but she, she had her proper race car legacy back then. Well, gents, did you know Cisco helps manage services providers directly know about the Cisco partner program? Focused on helping partners combine managed services expertise and service creation with innovative Cisco technology and proven go-to-market resources, there's a program option for you. With provider pricing, MDF, and marketing resources coupled with Cisco's leading technologies, including Meraki, Duo, and Umbrella, learn more with the link right in the show notes. Excellent. Thank you very much. Let's jump into our first topic. It's called Work From Work which I don't know about you guys, it's a very weird world when going to the office is now considered to be an aberration. So we're linking to an article from the New York Times that I think is very interesting. It tells us a story about the statistics in Manhattan, which are probably not exactly the same as around the country, but they're saying 8% of workers are full-time back in the office and everybody else is either fully remote or hybrid. Now, last summer, we heard uh, back at the beginning of the summer, we heard about the great reopening and everybody was going to rush back into the office and that didn't happen. So uh, the the implications and the questions for you guys are, um, do we think that we're actually in the new normal now, that that this hybrid thing is the way of the future and uh, have we learned how to do it well? No, next topic. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is a continually evolving story, but, you know, several things have emerged. First of all, we're not done going back to the office. Many, many, many more companies will do this. And in higher percentages, there are there are a lot of things evolving with regard to the research we've seen at Microsoft around creativity, as well as teamwork, building culture. I'm hiring a new person and she's going to start coming to the office because I can train her faster and bring her up to speed on the culture more quickly, but then she will transition to being a remote worker. And I think that's gonna be a pretty common thing. You also have a lot of, especially high tech companies, they've put a lot of money into pool tables and <laughs> big screen TVs for the uh, the employees. And you know, a lot of them, you guys have been there, they have entire cafeterias. And so they've got those resources that uh, they just can't see their way around not using, you know? Well, so so th- for, this is the awkward teenagers pit bit. Like we're feeling around and businesses are trying to figure out what this means. And they're very, very focused on the physical location. This is, you, you can see that all these articles talk about, well, what percentage are in the office and what percentage in days? And, and it's like, 
the ones that are actually going to make the leap and get this right won't be dwelling so much on time. They'll be focused on tasking. They're going to be focused on how are deliverables being done, how is teamwork being done, how are we delivering on company missions, on goals, are we, how are we building culture, how do we measure that. And it won't have anything to do with time. And that's, I think, the ones that are going to really get this. There's going to be a lot of stumbling around in the dark. There's going to be a lot of people that don't figure this out well. And, the, you know, and, and thus, out of that will become some examples of people that get it right and they figure out what it means for them, right, and what it means for their organization. And there's going to be a gazillion little different answers to this, and people are going to figure out bits and pulls from different ways that they're going to make work for them. I am, uh, what, I, what I'm going to be focusing on too is, and I, I just talked about this as some new Pew research out, that has actually shown like the for the first time, like essentially about a 9% drop in Americans who get purpose and fulfillment from work, who, who, get, who, are, who are getting that. And that for me is still, is the headline, the Americans are less focused on work as their reason for existing. Like <laughs> as, as a culture that is super focused here, what we're, what we're balancing is you, we keep having this conversation around just the business, right? Like, well, how does it impact the business and what's going on in the business and what's going on in the workspace? And you're forgetting the like, what's happening outside of that? Because there's a whole bunch of people that are way more concerned now about what's happening outside of work versus what's happening inside of work. And so I, I look at all of these factors and go, yeah, none of this is final. This is all just the feeling around. So you have to also wonder on that Pew Research whether that's just 9% have just become more aware of themselves and the fact that they weren't, they weren't satisfied with work in the first place. They just didn't think about it. See, I think you're, you're, you're onto something right there. And, and Dave, I agree with you. It's less about the time. It's more about the effectiveness. Can you get your job done? And that has something to do with the organization, both at the cultural level as well as at the process and connectivity level. Do you have the basic tools to do your job? And is this a place where doing jobs remote is, is considered to be okay? But more than that, it's about the person. Does that person know how to do work remotely. Uh, I was looking back in, in our show history, and I think it's about 18 months ago now, that we talked about a phenomenon called ROWE, Results Only Work Environment. As a concept, it's not new, but it is an evolution of how you measure goal and pay people, right? Like, this is what I expect you to accomplish. And frankly, I don't care how long it takes you to get that thing done because there's a value for the task that I'm asking you to complete. We take that for granted in an outsourced world, right? When, when we are contractors or when we hire contractors, you know, frankly, if I hire you for a task and it takes you 80 hours to do something and it comes back in pretty good shape and then I hire somebody else and it takes them 15 hours and it comes back in the same good shape, I don't consider the extra work to be a compliment. I consider that to be, you didn't really know what you were doing and you're not very good at it. I believe that's going to become a whole new front in the competitive dynamic. It's not just, can you find and hire people? Can you find and hire people who are good at getting things done and actually want to join the culture of your organization? I, frankly, I, I become more and more convinced we don't have a labor shortage. We have a shortage of people who are willing to work terrible jobs 
and that's not their problem. That's our problem as the employers. <laughs> well, the other thing is, I think that what's going to shake down out of all this is we sent people home and we said, oh, man, so many people are able to work remotely. It's amazing and spectacular. And what we haven't paid attention to is all the stuff that didn't get done. Because in that transition, a lot of little things were no longer high priority and they literally just didn't get done. And so we're going to have to redefine some jobs, reorganize a bit and, and create jobs designed from the start to be remote and create jobs that are that are designed to be transitioning from in-house training to remote. Um, and it, it'll happen it's just a matter of time. Well, and, and look, I'm going to keep saying the ones that get that right are the ones that are going to pull ahead. Right. And so that's that's the that's your takeaway is is figuring that is worth an investment. But I'm going to move us on to topic two, because I want to I want to kick around a little bit about way Apple is behaving. And this one was buried a little bit. And Apple's gotten a lot of heat for employees and for pay wages stuff and for rights to repair. But this one was a little buried there. CNBC actually managed to get a hold of the contracts with some of the states about the way they're doing digital IDs. And it gives Apple pretty broad control over the way digital ideas, IDs are rolled out in those engagements. Of course, they're doing work with Georgia, Arizona, Oklahoma, and Kentucky already. Apple gets sole discretion over the, uh, a number of bits, including device compatibility, launch dates, the state's marketing campaigns, how the states report on that. Make, it makes sure that the state allocate enough uh, personnel and resources to support it on a timetable determined by Apple that <laughs> makes the states responsible for promoting it as well as incurring adoption. Uh, it holds accountability for the authenticity of the program to the states. It absolves Apple from any discrepancy in the verification system. Uh, I, you know, I want to point out to all of this, this is a uh, Apple-led program, but a taxpayer-funded one. Guys, what's your take on coming down this distinctly uh, in control of a program like this, which is theoretically a public-private partnership. Good good for Apple. I always love it when it's so obvious who wrote the contract. Here, let me just ask for everything. And if you could sign on the bottom, that would be great. Um, The biggest thing for me was Apple's not responsible for the verification of the data. I was like, what? So... (laughs) This could be a completely fake ID and it could be on three different uh, people, you know, with the same ID and whatever. And it's they're completely absolved like that's big for me. Well, um, but they control the data. They, I mean, the, the, the states control their identification data. So they're, if I'm I'm just playing, you know, discussing it out, how would Apple verify that? Well. For one thing, they can put systems in place. They can work with the states and say, you have to follow these guidelines. Apple knows more about the security of what they need than the states do. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, and my guess is at the end of the day, they're all going to spend enough money to make it happen right. But, you know, Apple's also asking for a blank check. You will spend as much money as it takes to make this work. Uh, That's not a bad commitment from a state. No, it's not. And and to your point, Carl, leverage is a good thing. 
right now we literally spent time last week uh with a, with a client engagement and, and we were talking to their sales force about selling into both very large enterprise organizations and public sector engagements versus a new growth initiative into smaller medium and, and, and smb type companies now all of the sales reps they they got this legacy of selling these great big engagements and selling them to very, very large organizations. And they're absolutely convinced that the market sets the terms for the price and the customer dictates what the, the engagement details are and the customer will dictate the time. And, and I actually asked them this question. Why would that be true? The only reason it would be true is if you actually agreed to those terms in your contract. And you only do that if you need that business more than the other person does. It's kind of the definition of leverage, right? I think this is a this is an emerging skill in the technology industry. Most providers are not good at this at all, right? If you read most contracts for MSPs, for security services, for project-based services, we tend to be like, Mother, may I, and pretty please, and I swear I'll go overtime and out of scope and not charge you anything for it because please allow me to do work for you as a customer. That, that has absolutely nothing to do with the structure of a good contract. Now, I agree, Dave. These guys went way over the top in terms of some of those conditions, but I've often coached people from an implementation point of view that if you do not insist on the structure of project management in the rollout, if you don't have you know documented responsibilities and timelines and consequences, clients will never stick to those things, right? It's it just, it's easier to go, eh, whatever, there's no, there's no penalty for going slow. So whatever, we're distracted. We're just well, not going to make Remember, that. you're also, you're dealing with DMVs, which are historically just way behind the times with their technology. I, I don't know why 90% of what you do at a DMV requires you to go into the office. Well, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> no, but, I mean, but it demonstrates where they are with technology. Well, so, so this, is, this is where like, I had a couple of observations on this because I am of so many minds on this particular one. First off, I will say like, kudos Apple, right? Ask for everything, man. And right. if, they, if a customer signs a contract, well, that's on the customer. Yeah. Uh, and so I do want to pivot and say like, well, you know, we could be, we should be critical of the, the states on this. But at the same time, if by that exact statement, they know, well, wait, they're not necessarily going to be great at this and they want some of the Apple usability in the way this all works. I don't know. It makes some sense to give Apple control over this. So this is one of those bits where it's, I'm really of so many different minds on this in terms of the way it works. For me, the, the takeaway was embedded there exactly in what you were saying, Ryan, is, is the, well, you should be really bold with these contracts. You should ask for a lot. You really should. Uh, you should be very clear and, and ask for as much as you possibly get. And it, that is called negotiation when you, when you work it all out because that's when the customer does understand what they are signing up to or, or it puts you in the ability, the seat to really manage that. And I would have very high expectations for Apple on this program if it rolls out because they've dictated all the terms and the customer went along with it. So it better work. 
Yes, and, and that's the thing, right? With leverage comes responsibility. The money follows the leverage, and so does the penalty for failure to perform. I, I think that that's a healthy thing. And to this audience, everybody who listens to this program, um, I think that this is a discipline we all need to get better at, but we should learn from some other industries, right? Look at the way lawyers write contracts. Look at the way accountants write contracts. Look at the way that uh, CPA and engineering firms write these things, right? They, they require you to pay ahead. There's absolutely no question that there's going to be a retainer. There's going to be, uh, you know, a change of venue for resolution. It's just built into the expectation. And we all go, well, I mean, that's just the way it is. That's how you hire a lawyer. Well, why? Because they said so and we agreed. Uh, the best lesson I ever learned in negotiation years and years ago, I had a sales leader who said, don't ask nothing, won't get nothing. And that ought to be the way of the world in business. Well, I other the other thing I would point out is that Apple being able to do this across several states gives them an extra foot up of uh, potentially setting the standard. And you know, if, if the standard is Apple, it's just like you know uh, putting Macintoshes in schools in the <laughs> 1980s, right? It's like, you know, get it, get it out there. Now that, I have to be honest, that strategy didn't really kill for them, but you know, uh, it was a wise move. It just didn't work out the way they wanted. Yeah, they didn't quite work out, but it almost did, right? It was, it was, it got me and it got Dave. So I think that uh, <laughs> yeah, two thirds of this show are back guys. Yeah, so there, like, there, not, there was, <laughs> there was some traction back then. All I have to say is as a request from a human, who carries a, an ID from a certain state that does not read in all of these newfangled airports, just scan your ID and you don't have to show us the, the, the pass. You don't have to show your boarding pass or anything. Um, let's not get too fancy for ourselves in this new ID rollout process. Let's make sure that all of the state's IDs can actually be read by these well, the, things. A conversation on the DMV, that's for another day. <laughs> <laughs> Topic number three is kind of a round table or a wrap up of uh, the electric vehicle market, which, you know, uh, Rivian went public uh, a few weeks ago uh, to the tune of $78 billion valuation. That's pretty impressive. Um, but also, you know, we hear all these talk in the news, you know, Tesla's got all of the, uh, the, the public relations. Um, I'm not sure they're gonna win that war, but it's an interesting time to watch an industry evolve. Uh, Ryan has mentioned the, the big switch by Nicholas Carr, right? When you see the evolution of an industry and you realize they know, they know for a fact that the future is coming faster than they can get ready for it, they are, they're putting themselves in a position where they have to do this and they don't have any choice. And at the same time, the people like Rivian who start from the ground up and don't have any legacy technology really have a huge advantage, Tesla as well. Um, and so if you're not trying to convince half of your board of directors to stop using uh, emission, you know, polluting uh, vehicles, that goes a long ways. Um, and that's why they basically pulled the plug and said, hey, you know, uh, we, we are not going to produce um, internal combustion engines after a certain date. And 
basically everybody's on board. So we've we've linked to several articles, but one of them is kind of this statistic roundup of what we're looking for in terms of growth and change in the market. And it's it's pretty impressive to see it coming so fast. Uh, right now, you know, we're looking at 14 million EVs are expected to um, be on the market uh, in just a couple of years, and then 33 million in five years after that. So I know that doesn't sound like huge, huge numbers, but then it explodes. So it's it's interesting and fun to be here. Well, I'm, what's interesting for me is, is and I'm gonna, gonna take us in a slightly different where from my statement on this is, I've become way more interested in the micro-mobility market as well. Um, and I say this having now, now an owner of a pair of e-bikes, my wife and I, uh, the idea of electric bicycles and small mobility stuff, I didn't get it till I got one <laughs> and uh, freely admit that there were a whole bunch of things that then instantly made more sense to me. So, for example, my example is, is like I can get up to the metro in 10 minutes on my on my e-bike, uh, which is roughly as long as it takes with car and parking. Right. Like if I think about getting in my car and I drive and I wait in traffic and I park and I walk into the metro, it's about 10 minutes and I can ride my e-bike and also do it in 10 minutes and be right at the station. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, OK, I get it now. Right. <laughs> I, I get the difference in that. And obviously they've got some 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 qualifications for for weather on that. So that that's where I'm looking at this and saying I'm not entirely sure I understand all of the second order effects of going to e-vehicles yet enough, and I want to spend more time thinking about it because I see you know I do see this coming. Now I want to also then make the statement of like I think these valuations are insane. Like I think this, oh, yeah. the valuations we're seeing on Rivian and Tesla and stuff, and I would tell anybody an investor going, yeah, that's not real. Like I don't, I, I believe too much in fundamentals to buy into that. But in terms of promise of EV, yeah, I'm, I'm on board, and it is coming a way faster, uh, you know, than I think than anybody thinks. Well, and and the numbers are going to tell a very interesting story in the short term, which should introduce very much opportunity for emerging companies, right? Uh, like Carl said, 14 million going to 33 million. And Rivian has of has as of today shipped uh, 200. Um, almost. Yeah, yeah, almost <laughs> 200 of them. They're, they're getting up there, man. They're picking up their pace. And yet they're worth more on paper than General Motors is. Now, what I do find interesting is the reactions of the legacy players because carl to your point if you if you think of the the idea of disruptive innovation and, and you know from go back to the book the innovators dilemma or the innovator's solution from clay from clay christensen one of the points that he makes there is if you have legacy business model and infrastructure and investment that you have to maintain, then by definition, your business is hamstrung in how rapidly it can adapt to the future. But these new startup companies who don't have any of that legacy, they will radically outpace you and get to the market faster. Well, as a result, not only did Rivian just go public at a ridiculous evaluation, but a week later, Ford canceled a contract with them that was going to be a joint partnership for building electric trucks because Ford looked at the numbers and said, either we figure out how to do this on our own and not just subcontract that capability, or we are yesterday's news. And that's a very interesting reaction. Now, 
in the spirit of, you know, innovation comes along very, very slowly until it happens all at once. Um, these, these electric vehicle predictions have been around for 20 odd years and we've never seen the uptake. And it's almost like conspiracy theory alert here. Uh, it's almost like the traditional auto companies have aggressively undercut the success of electric vehicles without any regard to whether or not the market wanted those things because they had investments in other business yeah, models and this would tend it's to the same story out. as kodak you know and film you know let's we're we're going to double down on film even though we invented and hold the patent to the electric camera but the the interesting thing is so in terms of things moving this year the first half of 2021 uh, europe all of europe china and the united states have each over a hundred and fifty percent increase in electric vehicles based on you know compared to first half of last year so that's quite dramatic and so you know you you can't ignore that and i think dave to your point about electric everything um as we begin to shift the world a little bit there'll be new possibilities um you know it used to be that people would say i would hear people say have you tried a tesla oh my god you won't believe it until you try one and i literally heard somebody say last week on uh the radio um have you tried an electric vehicle? Oh my God, you can't believe it. You have to try one. And it was it was no longer Tesla. It was electric vehicles sort of generically. And I don't think they were talking about a Prius. No, <laughs> I, I, can, I can assure you they were not talking about that. And Dave, I think you are onto something. The micro transportation is going to be drastically higher quantity, even though lower dollar amounts, right? So it's good. It's going to be a completely different market dynamic and in who's investing and, and how those, those products get adopted. But I'm a big fan of anything that can solve that last mile of a challenge. Uh, we wish that there was a train system that would get us from here to there, mass transit wise, and then we only had to stitch on the extra half a mile to a mile at the end of our journey. But that's not true. So I think that we're going to see both micro and large format electric vehicles be very aggressively adopted. Yeah, and well, in that your exact statement speaks also to, to locale. I mean, I'm the one who lives in a, in a metro or a metro metropolitan area that has a metro, right? That has a, where, where instantly it's like, oh, that's a not that's your exact example is is oh, I've solved that last mile bit that I was using with my car. Now I can solve it with an electronic vehicle. And by the way, an electric vehicle that I can just chain up to the bike rack, but <laughs> you know, or take on the subway with me, and then and then when I get to the other side, keep going. Like there's actual options for that, and so it made a ton of sense in the in the context. I. I'm intrigued by this whole space. I want to make sure that you know I, I would be remiss if I didn't observe in our last couple of moments. By the way, everybody, I am the regulation guy who brings this up. When you motivate industries based on subsidies or uh, tax incentives, you get behaviors. Ryan, you've talked about lobbying from the you know from the fossil fuel industry. Huh? Funny, we saw a lot of fossil fuel industry. I wonder where that's coming from. Maybe we're subsidizing it. <laughs> you know, you want to want some conversion? We could remove that. It's a healthy debate. It's not for today. It's interesting. So my daughter is a Subaru fanatic, and they just announced that in 2025, they're going to have this all electric, you know, high end, blah, 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 SUV crossover or whatever. And she's like, I'm going to buy one as soon as it's available. Like, okay, there right. you go. She she hasn't driven it. She, she, she knows it's not even going to look like what the prototype looks like. And 
but she's already committed to it. And well, and it, we'll, we'll drop the bombshell. Like, the, think about the. We'll tie the two stories together. If Apple announced a car, millions of people would sign up to buy it. <laughs> like, oh. like just just instantly millions of people would sign up to buy the apple car so think about the way dis, you know technology is moving into those other areas based on that brand loyalty that some of them have but how would they make it incompatible with me driving a non-apple car <laughs> separate lane separate lane <laughs> I, I know i they, they would have their own special right. traffic signals that no one else all can right make. so pull over and listen to our podcast in the apple lane and make sure that you tell your friends that you love and uh, enjoy the killing it podcast that has been episode 139 of the killing it <laughs> podcast Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.